We are going to be learning um, Psalm 30 tonight. We'll be spending our entire time on Capitol, on Capitol Lamed. I'm going to mute everybody. We're going to um, be focusing on Capitol Lamed tonight. And it is a remarkable, uh, remarkable psalm because it's one that appears before us every single day when we start Psuke de Zimra. Uh, depending on what nusach you follow, it's either the mm-hmm. first part of Psukki de Zimra really that comes before Baruch Shamar, so it might not actually even be part of Psukki de Zimra. Um, in uh, in Nusach Sfard, following the opinion of the Arizal, it's recited before Baruch Shamar, and uh, some some scholars uh, aver that it should be recited immediately after the recitation of the Karbanos. Believe it or not, there is an entire section of davening uh, after saying Birchot HaShachar, where we recite different psukim, different verses having to do with the temple rituals, uh, the kior, the laver, and the bringing of the Karban Tamid, and uh, Parshas HaAkedah. So after bringing the sacri- after talking about the sacrifice, Sacrifices, we move directly, according to the Arizal, uh, into, into this particular psalm. But I want to preface by talking one more time. I know we talked about it last night, one more time about Lagba Omer, and I think in a way that will be a, a beautiful segue into learning about this particular, in this particular uh, psalm, this particular capital. I talked last night a little bit about the Demut, about the figure of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, uh, connected a little bit the famous story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai as it appears in Shabbos, Taflamid, Gimel, Amid Beis, with the story of Eliyahu Hanavi Bahara Carmel and his running away in Malachim Aleph chapter 19. Uh, subsequent to my posting this year, um, person that I, I admire very much, Rabbi Eli Rubin, uh, who is, um, Rabbi Eli Rubin, who is, um, I will. I will absolutely let people know how to access the recording. Absolutely. Um, I uh, uh, a person I admire very much, a scholar, uh, Rabbi Eli Rubin, uh, showed me a, uh, a a lecture given by the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1961. It's an unedited lecture, and what the Lubavitcher Rebbe theorizes is that when you look at the figure of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in in the Talmud, so two figures emerge. The figure that we're most familiar with is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who privileges the learning of Torah over everything. That learning Torah is the sine qua non of human existence, and all mundane activities are to be discarded in the face of learning Torah. In fact, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says in the Gemara in Shabbos and Daf Lamed Hayamid Beis that if a person were to be truly dedicated to their learning, now this is a hard thing to imagine, if you really meant it, if you were really into it, so then you could learn all the time. And malach the Other people would do your work. You don't have to worry about any sort of uh, earning a parnasa or any sort of mundane activity. You could live in a totally rarefied cave existence for your entire life, purely serving God. That that is the demut. That is the image of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. I think that appears first in people's minds. What the Levavitch Rabbi points out is that while it is true that Rabbi Shimon had ascended to these extraordinarily lofty heights in Avodat Hashem, the service of God, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai also has a separate image that appears in the Talmud. For example, I'm going to give two examples. Immediately after the story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son hiding in the cave, coming out, burning everything that they see with their eyes, 
and going back in for a year, and then emerging, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai has the rectifying, the healing gaze, whereas his son, Rav Lazar, still has the zealous, um, kana'ish gaze of burning things up. So immediately thereafter, the Gemara recounts that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says something incredible. As he returns back to his friends, the other rabbis, he looks around and he says something incredible. He says, is there anything in this world that requires rectification, that requires a fixing, asks as a question, like we should be asking, go around, and if we're okay nowadays, we should be saying, well, how can I be helpful? What can I, what can I be of assistance? Where am I needed? And that's what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai uh, asked as he emerged from the cave. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was told, and it's amazing, because um, I was today years old when I realized that this comes directly after the story which I thought that I knew quite well. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, kuna. Is there anything that needs to be fixed? And they tell him that there's a house, there's an area of the city that is a suffix tumah. It's doubtful whether or not that area is ritually impure. And not only is it a suffix tumah, but it's a suffix aviavosa tumah. It's a doubt of the worst kind, the, the most severe kind of ritual impurity which is the sense that it is built over a burial ground. And since it might be built over a burial ground, so certainly no Kohanim would be able to live there. Uh, really not anybody should be able to live there in such a place. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai sees this as his opportunity, as an opening for a tikkun, for a rectification, and using uh, the penetrating Talmudic insight and genius that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai possessed, he was able to go ahead and to be metaher, to rule that that house was pure, ritually pure, not just pure, but pure enough for Kohanim to move into the house. That Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai took the worst kind of tumah, the worst kind of impurity, and was able to elevate it and to purify it. That's one example. Another example is the Gemara Menachos and Daftzadi Tet Amin on uh, folio 92b, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai uh, is of the opinion, the question is, is, what is the level of learning that a person needs to achieve in a particular day in order to fulfill the mitzvah of Talmud Torah? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is of the opinion that simply saying the first Pasuk of Kriyat Shema, Sagi B'zeh, that's enough. Now, that doesn't square with our understanding of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai as the zealot, the, the, the fundamentalist, who believes only Torah and nothing else. Instead, we find Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai with an extraordinarily open and expansive view of what fits into Avodat Hashem, into the service of God. The way the Lubavitcher Rebbe says it, uh, I'm not going to be able to replicate his language, but the way he says it is very relevant to Psalm 30. And that's why I'm saying it, not just because we're watching the sunset on Lagba Omer, Tav Shinpei, but because it connects deeply to how we understand or how I understand this particular capital. Rabbi Shema Bar Yochai, the Lubavitcher Rebbe tells us in 1961, his ascent to these lofty heights, his ascent through asceticism, seclusion, and an ability to block out the world, and his ability to rise towards communion with God allowed him to return back to the world, coming from such great heights, returned back to the world with an ability to go to the deepest possible depths and to find a spark of holiness there, to find some truth and some Torah in that place and to elevate that as well. Lubavitcher Rebbe says that his work was la'achid hafachim to bring together opposites and to join together extremes. That only a person who had risen to that lofty height 
was able to do such a thing. That was the message that we partially tried to convey last night, but of course, Lubavitcher Rebbe in, 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 in infinite levels of learning greater was able to express this through Rabbi Shimon's halachic opinions elsewhere in Shas. And I think that it points to a sense of our spirituality, our own personal spirituality as being one of running and returning, great heights and depths. And we want to try and figure out a way that we combine these two areas, that we're able to be to take the extremes and to link them together. So with that preamble, I want to talk about our psalm tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen with you guys. And uh, this is actually, this is the Sicha uh, that I was on for the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Lag Ba'omer, Tafshim Chaf 1961, Muga, unedited version. But that's not what we're learning tonight. We're learning Tehillim. Here's Psalm 30. So here's what I want to ask everybody to do. Uh, previously, I had read through the psalm and, uh, and, and given a translation of it as I read along. I don't want to waste your time by reading the English. So I'm going to ask everybody just for a moment or two to look at my screen if you can see it and to just read through the psalm in English once. And, uh, and then we're going to jump right into it so that it will be easier to reference that which, we're, that which we're expounding upon it. So again, the psalm is right in front of you, Psalm 30, Mizmor Shir Chanukas Habayis Ledavid. So take a moment, familiarize yourselves a little bit with the English here. It continues slightly uh, to the next page, but we'll get there in a couple of moments. We only need focus on the first part of it. Now, as you're doing that, I'll offer a few more prefatory remarks. The first is, is that Psalm 30, as we mentioned, is ubiquitous in our daily prayers, but also becomes very important during a particular holiday during the year, which is Hanukkah. This psalm is recited together with the Shir Shalyom every single day of Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah, of course, happens centuries later than David HaMelech, and also we have to deal with the question that David HaMelech never really saw the dedication of the temple. He never saw the building of the temple. It was his son who saw it. So it raises the first question that we have to deal with, which is, what exactly is David HaMelech talking about over here? It's recited at Hanukkah, so it's connected to the rededication of the temple, Hanukkah Tabayit. But Hanukkah Tabayit can also refer to the first dedication. For example, when a person builds a house, uh, at least according to most poskim, only if you build a house in the land of Israel. So it's incumbent upon you to thank God for that and to have a special ceremony of a Hanukkah Sabayis. We have it with our, I remember when we uh, moved into the new Lincoln Square building, we had a great celebration. Uh, Hanukkah Habayit is the dedication of a home. So is it referring to Hanukkah, where the Hashmonaim rededicated the ravaged temple? Is it referring to the first temple's dedication, which David Melch did not see? Or is it referring to something else entirely? And all those opinions are opinions that come up in the understanding of this psalm from the commentators. So we're going to offer three approaches. The first approach is that this is indeed referring to the first temple. And that what David Amalek is referring to over here was his construction of the foundation of the temple. That's the opinion of, that's brought in Bereshit Rabbah. In Genesis, Rabbah tells us that this was the psalm that David Amalek sang when he first was involved with the pouring, as it were, of the foundations of the temple. Another opinion, the Patron Torah, which is a Geonic work. I saw in an essay from Professor Mark Svi Brettler on this particular psalm. So in Patron Torah, which is a Geonic interpretation from the 10th century, so they mentioned that, of course, David HaMelech never saw the temple, 
But owing to our understanding, David HaMelech saw himself as inaugurating the construction that his son would finish, again, by making the foundations of the temple. Just going to let uh, some other people in. Excellent. That is, that is one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that this is the approach of the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra says, following the words of Chazal, that David HaMelech penned this particular psalm in order that it be recited by the Levim when his son Shlomo HaMelech would finally build the temple. But the Ibn Ezra doesn't stop there. The Ibn Ezra says, not only is it referring to the dedication of the first temple, but it's referring to the dedication of the second temple, and God willing, Meheira Yibana, the dedication of the third temple. And a third approach that we could potentially offer is that it's not referring to a dedication of any temple at all. In fact, it's referring to the dedication of our inner temple. Chanukat Habayit Ledavid the Malbim, Rav Meir Leibesh Wisser Malbim, says that Chanukat Habayit Ledavid, the temple that's being referred to over here, is David HaMelech's own persona, David HaMelech's body, as it were. A rather shocking way of looking at this, as we so automatically associate it with the physical edifice of the temple, the Beit HaMikdash itself. That, in the words of Professor Brettler, the main question now becomes, is this a psalm of personal salvation? or a psalm of public dedication. What we're going to argue tonight is that it's really both. Mizmor Shir Chanukah The yellow section is the koteret. That is the, uh, the title or the heading for this particular psalm. There's 12 verses subsequent to that. And the 12 verses can be bro- broken down into the following way. The first is praise of God. And God is referred to over here in Alashon Nochach in a direct language. I praise you because you have lowered me down. What does it mean to be lowered down? So the Svas Emes, the great Hasidic master, pointed out that the word Dilisani comes from the word Dili, which means a bucket. If I were to go to a well and to lower a bucket down into the well, so I would be lowering my Dili into the well and coming back up with something from the well. The Sfasemis, and I put it over here, he writes, Kasav Haradak. The Radak says, I'm going to make it a little bit larger so you could see my own notes over here. Kasav Haradak. The Radak wrote, Ki Dilisani Hulashon Shvelut. Dilisani is a language of subjugation, of lowering oneself, of feeling very low down. Vigam Lashon Hitnasut. But it's an autoantonym. It contains both one meaning and the opposite. Not only does it mean to be lowered down, but it means to be raised up, hitnasut, to be brought back up, which is exactly what you would do with a bucket in those times, or if you happen to have a well in your own property. Ve'a'inyan, what is meant over here? Ki kol yiridat b'nei Yisrael hi litzorech aliyah. Every lowering, every descent of the Jewish people is litzorech aliyah, is for a sense of ascending which is why it also means, it's an auto-antonym, it means to go down and to come up at the same time. It refers to a sense of descent for the sake of ascending. You know, sometimes we find ourselves that it's in our lowest points, it's at the points where we're tested most, that we come up with something, that we ascend with something from that occasion. And people were saying, um, almost comically, People were writing, uh, there was some tweet that somebody had put out saying, if you don't emerge from COVID, if you don't emerge from quarantine with some sort of a skill that you've learned, with some sort of, uh, with some sort of an elevation for yourself, you know, what are you doing? Now, of course, that kind of a comment is 
a silly comment because it ignores the fact that uh, many people are just fo- focused right now on where their next paycheck is going to come from or how they're going to provide for their families or whether or not they're going to stay healthy or chas on the losses that they've had. Nobody is expected, or at least not the default, nobody's expected to come out here and if you, don't ha- if you haven't learned a new language or an instrument or created some lasting work of art, that you're some sort of a failure. But in that same line, in that same vein, I would say that if we left this period of time, an immensely trying time that many of us have not seen anything like this in our lives, blessedly, if we come out of it not having learned something, then perhaps that may be a failure. Now, learning is far easier than coming out with some sort of a marketable skill. Learning something means that we take a time of suffering, kidli sunny, and we use that to, to elevate, to extol God. I, for one, I've been telling people I can only speak for myself. I, for one, have found, I'll be quite honest and, and personal, perhaps, I have found, um, not that I'm good at it in any way, I have found that this time, these eight weeks that we have not been able to be in shul, I found this uh, as a time that I've been able to rediscover what it means to pray. Uh, I realize that so often when I'm in shul or in school, running a minion of seventh and eighth graders or, uh, or trying to be a decent rabbi, that I'm self-conscious about my prayer, it's short, it's focused on other things, what am I going to say afterwards, um, is there talking? I, I find myself that my, my own practice of prayer for the last 10 years, unfortunately, has suffered tremendously. All of a sudden, Dili Sunny, we've been lowered down into the situation. The bucket that I find myself coming back up with is what it means to daven a mariv and just to take time. What it means to daven a shachris and to not have to worry about what's going on. Now, I want to be very clear, make no mistake, I miss very much being worried about what's going on in shul. I like that, enjoy that. That's why I chose that this would be my job and my, uh, hopefully my, my calling. But that's when I think of Aramim Hashem Ki Delisani, that I'm able to elevate something, I'm able to rise up with something from this. So that's kind of what I have in mind. These times when we are tested, when we go through difficult times, that's when we learn. Any time we're lowered down should be for the purpose of ascending afterwards. And all of our exile. The Sfasemis tells us that not just in this moment, not just if you had a bad day, not just if you feel that you've been lowered to a certain extent, but really all of the exile that we've experienced should be seen in a certain vein. And over here he's tapping into the wisdom of the Ari, again the Arizal, that there is holiness to be found throughout the world. One might argue that a Jew should only be in Eretz Yisrael and should only serve God in the land of Israel. An idea or an approach that incorporates that are meant to take things out from bad or lowered situations would say that there is holiness, that there are gifts that are meant to be discovered even in places that are not where we belong. And his textual proof over here is from another time in Tehillim that this is mentioned. In Kuftesayin Pasakvav. Dalosi Veli Yehoshia. God, you have lowered and raised me up, and that act 
action, that running and returning, that sense of being lowered and coming back up, descent for the sake of an ascent, that is our salvation. Perush, kol hadalut There is a way of looking at every negative situation, at anything that chalila happens to us that is not the way that we want it, and seeing that as part and parcel of our eventual salvation. That is the power of this phrase over here. That is the power of what's meant by this very first line, I will extol thee, O Lord, for you have raised me up, but again, understanding that this word, Dilisani, also indicates a kind of lowering. Dalim verekim. We tell God at the beginning of our tshuva process, we're standing before you empty, a dal, an em- rekim, empty and dal, and impoverished and paupers spiritually. So Dilisani contains both of those meanings, and that is the powerful metaphor that David HaMelech is playing off of here. At the end, no matter what kind of hits I took, I got back up and my enemies did not rejoice over me. Hashem Elokai, my God, Shivati Elecha. That word Shivati is not just the language of Tefillah. Shava is one of the, uh, one of the 13 languages of Tefillah. I, I, I can reference an unbelievable small tome written by Rabbi Shimshon David Pincus, uh, who was sent by Rav Shach, uh, sent by Roshach to Yeshivat HaNegev to open up Yeshiva in the Negev. Rav Shimshon David Pinkus has a book called Sha'arim B'Tfilah, one of the first Sfarim that I ever encountered. And Sha'arim B'Tfilah, he goes through these 13 different languages that we use. Tsa'aka, Shava, Tfilah, Tachnun, all these different languages that we use to describe our Tfilah. It's like, um, you guys know what a snow clone is? A snow clone is, um, is a linguistic term. Uh, it usually is expressed something like this. People say erroneously, uh, because it's not true. Um, people say erroneously that, you know, the Inuit or tribes of the far north will have, you know, like 60 different words for snow. Because snow is ubiquitous. Snow is part of their reality. Snow is who they are. So a snow clone is one of these words that we would use to describe ubiquitous reality. I always tell my Talmidim in school when I'm introducing Gemara to them for the first time, and they're asking, hey, Rabbi, why is it that there's like 50 different words for a question and answer? I don't like, I don't get it. And you could explain in a technical sense, well, this question means that it's coming from a brysa. This question means that it's coming from, that it's a question, a tiyufta is a proof, and it's a question that can't be assailed, a kasha is a, 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 a light question, you know, all these different snow clones that Jews have for questions. I said in my introduction to them learning Talmud, I said, we're like the Inuit, but for questions. That's what a Jew is. Jews live with questions. So we have like dozens of words for how to ask a question and how to answer a question. So similarly, in a similar way, when we talk about this Psalm, so we use this word, right? This word, Shivata Elecha. That is one of the 13 chief words. And Rab Pincus in this genius book goes ahead and shows how each one of these words is a new way of understanding a kind of tefillah. The tefillah is not just one thing, but it's dynamic in its concept. It's a metonym that contains so many other ideas within it. So Shava is a particular kind of tefillah that is a 
yearning that is bursting, that is almost trying to scream out, Saka is next, but Shava is a plea, it's a cry out to God. Now we could all understand what it means to cry out to God for a refua, and we continue to cry out to God for a refua, but over here it seems to be that the refua is a spiritual refua. The person who has been lowered down into the pit and then praises God for being raised out of the pit, so understands that God is the one who grants this refuah, refuah sanefesh, urefuah saguf, the healing of the soul and the healing of the body. Continuing on to verse 4, again, these first, um, I don't know what color this is, it's like a lavender, a lavender or lilac. My daughter picked this color for the highlighting, but um, she said I needed a pink, but the only, other, the only one was hot pink, and I was like, it blocks the words, you can't see them. So in this pink section, this is still praise for God. This is still praise for the kind of dynamic that we're going to see throughout this psalm. Hashem he'elita min sha'ol nafshi. God, you've raised my soul out of sha'ol. We know that in the levels of hell, in our lore, in Jewish tradition, Sheol is the lowest one. Sheol is the one that represents the complete negation of death. Kasha kishaol kina. Sheol is a reference to the, the pit. God, you've brought my soul up from the pit, from the Sheol, from the neither world. I found it's almost, um, you know, people talk about uh, near-death experiences and, uh, and, and in, in a lot of the reports of near-death experiences or people that have, you know, maybe taken like extraordinarily powerful hallucinogenics. So they talk about a place where they find themselves as if they're falling off of a cliff into the abyss when they're going into a place where they have absolutely no more shlita. Sha'ol is that great, uh, that great bursting through, uh, letting go of everything, and God has raised me up from that pit. You kept me alive when I was coming up or from going down to the pit. Now, you can see that I underlined certain sections of this psalm. What happens throughout this psalm, there's another one over here, and there's another one over here. What I think, and part of why I mentioned Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai as a person who connects the higher world and the lower world, or the highest heights and the deepest depths, is that if this psalm could be uh, seen as a diagram, it's one arrow going up, and another, or one arrow going down, and then another arrow going up. This psalm is moving vertically. This psalm is talking constantly about being lowered down and then being raised up. You had it over here. Aramim Chashem Kidlisani, the bucket. You have it over here. Ha'alita min Sholnashi, you brought me up from the pit, from the neither world. Hechitani miyor debor, you brought me up from going down into the pit. Again over here, he'emaditi lahariyoz, you stood me on the pinnacle of the highest mountains. And again over here in verse 10, beriti al shachat, descending down to destruction, the pit of despair. So that is the diagram, or that's how this psalm is to be read, uh, uh, I, I would guess, uh, geometrically. It's up and down. It has a shape to it. Now, we continue to appraise that the person who has experienced this sense of going down and being raised up now calls others to learn from it. If we've experienced a time in our lives and some of the most powerful lessons that I believe that, we've, that I've heard is a person that's described a period of descent, described a period of being in a pit, 
and being able to come out to, whether you're hearing an addict describe recovery, or somebody that's experienced intense grief and loss, and their road back to a place of calm and of equanimity, or a person who has undergone a sustained financial loss and built themselves back up or came from humble beginnings. These are some of the stories that impact us most as human beings. And a person that's experienced that, if they can, they describe that experience to other people to fortify them for that kind of experience in order to tell them, if this happens to you, God forbid, if you find yourself in the pit, if you find yourself lowered down, if you find yourself at a loss, that there is a road back, there is a way to achieve an ascent, and here's what it looks like, and calls out to them to praise God as well. And that's what happens in the green section over here. Turning to everybody, to the congregation, let's all sing to God. I want to dwell on this verse for a second. Has a very unique place in the Talmud. The Talmud tells us as a proof text that Bilam Harasha, that Bilam had a knowledge of God. Bilam knew a little bit about God. Now the Gemara asks very quickly after they said, You want to tell me that Yada Das Elyon Vidas Behemta Lo Yada? That Bilam knew what God was thinking? He didn't even know what his donkey was thinking. Nevertheless, despite that very strong charge as to what the nature of the prophecy of Bilam is, something we could talk about at a different juncture, uh, or if you want to look at uh, Torah from the heavens, from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, there's an entire chapter uh, placing the prophecy of Bilam and juxtaposing it to the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu. It appears towards the end. I have the very big edition with the footnotes by, uh, by Rabbi Tucker. I, I, I forgot where it is in that version, but if you have the smaller version, you could easily find this discussion. But Bilam, it seems, nevertheless, had some knowledge of God. Bilam knew a little bit about God. Now, what did Bilam know about God? The Gemara says, Bilam knew the moment in the day, the millisecond, during the day that God is kivyachol, as if to say God experiences anger. And Bilam knew that when God is at that moment of af, af is the Hebrew word for nose, and we, we're familiar with the biblical term of charon af. Charon af is when I get really angry and I flare my nostrils. So charon af is, uh, is, is a corporealization of God flaring his nostrils, kivyachol, in anger. And Bilam knew how to detect that time of af, of af, of anger of God. And when Bilam would tap into that, then he could curse. Right? So he failed at that because he wasn't able to discern that moment in the time of Parshat Balak. And we find that Bilam instead blessed the Jewish people. But a way of being a Bilam would say, God is angry with us at times. God is not, it's not all great. God is unhappy with how we conduct ourselves. We don't always follow what God wants for us. Or instead of we, I don't always follow what God wants for me. And I know that there are times that I certainly have angered God. That's a relationship too. Uh, It's arrogant to think that that Josh Rosenfeld could anger God, but that's how we understand that relationship. That's how we understand individual divine providence. A Russia focuses on the af. Russia focuses on the moment that God is angry and forgets the fact that it's only a rega. And in truth, what does God want? Chayim birtsono. God desires life. Don't take my word for it. Take the word of the Navi Micha. I'm going to go back down to my footnote over here. Vigam lanias daiti. I wrote according to my knowledge. Right. This tells us that a Russia focuses on the af and tosses away. I've angered God. 
it's all finished. I have to just give up. There's no chance of me getting back. Forgetting that it's just a rega. Forgetting that it's just a second. Forgetting that it's just a moment. And the moment ends. The moment ends. And you're able to go ahead and to dance again. You're able to go ahead and feel joy. You could experience the joy of closeness to God in a close relationship. God desires that. He says over here, a Russia, like Bilam, wants to focus on that anger of God, wants to wallow in guilt, wants to wallow in the fact that people are angry at me, a kind of spiritual troll. I want people to be angry at me. I want to see them upset. I want to see what that's like. And doesn't forget that our work is to focus on the Chaim, on the fact that God is Chafetz Chaim. And the Navi Micha tells us this. And we recite these, we recite these verses uh, traditionally when we throw out um, our sins, Kivyachol, when we toss out our sins, if you look in your Sidur or your Machser, you'll find that these verses appear at the top, at least in my Siddur, um, the Chalkas Yoshua Siddur of Biala. So these verses appear during Tashlich. And we say, Miel Kamocha, who's a God like you? No se avon al pesha. You sustain our sins and you bear our sins and you ignore them to allow us to do tshuva. The response to Abilam, God does not always hold on to, to his anger. Because God desires kindness and loving kindness. He should return and have mercy on us. That's the custom of Tashlich, and that's why these verses are recited traditionally with Tashlich, to ignore the moment of anger and to allow us to cast off our sins and to throw them away and say, that's not me. I desire life, and I desire a life of closeness. And all this really appears subsequently, I saw, in the Chalkas Yoshua Machser as well. So that is this notion over here, Kirega Bapo, that's Bilam. We focus on Chaim Bertzano. God desires eternal life. God wants us, even though we might find ourselves low, we might find ourselves hit, to rise up and to say, we want life. I'm going to stand up and choose life. We know that uh, in all the Christian interpretations, Lahavdil, of this psalm, so the, the koteret to this psalm and the sermons that are given to the psalm is joy comes in the morning. And I think it's fair to say that that is a, a theme of this psalm. I think it's correct. Joy comes in the morning. We know one of the most fundamental divrei Torah that anybody who's been to an NCSY Shabbaton will hear, the Emunas Chabalelos. Our faith endures even in dark times, in the dark night of the soul, our faith endures. And though we go to sleep fearful and in tears, we wake up with praise. We wake up with a sense of, it's a new day. I'm thinking of Daniel Tiger, which has uh, basically uh, been in my head nonstop, right? Because my two-year-old has started watching it, right? It's a new day. It's a new chance. Uh, and, and, and to say, I'm going to seize this day. I'm going to try again to embrace life, even though I've been lowered down. Erev over here also uh, is a reference to confusion, Erev from the word irbuvya. In times of confusion that could cause us to cry. I'm at a loss. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to sing to God. I don't know how to call out to God right now. I feel like I'm in the pit. The despair of confusion. The despair of not knowing where God is. The despair of not knowing what my path is. And to understand that tomorrow is a new day. To go to sleep. I put my soul in your hands, God. Come what may. And then to wake up, Rina, with joy. 
And this is a line that really gets me, and I can't believe that we are almost going to be running out of time. There's so much to unpack here. David HaMelech says, I said when I was at a time of security, when I was sitting pretty, when I was in a high place, when things were good, the refrigerator was full, I had enough toilet paper, I felt settled, I felt good, I'm protected, no problem, I've got everything I need. I'm never going to fall off of this place. I'm never going to be moved from this place of security. And we all know how tenuous our place is in this world. We all know that it happens that sometimes we might be at the very top, the very pinnacles, and we could feel that we are at the top of the world. And sometimes we know that finding ourselves in the deepest canyon is just next door. And it could be a moment from one to the other. Or it could even happen at the same time. That kind of contradictory experience. People say, especially the young, I think of what my Saba Zechrona Levracha used to say to me when he would see me. He was, uh, he was never nothing if not heavy when he saw us, a survivor who loved us very much. So he would look at me, especially when I was like uh, a teenager and I would play sports and everything. And he would say to me, uh, already after his heart attacks, he says, Smach bachor bialdusecha. Rejoice, young one, in your youth. I believe it comes from Kohelis, from Ecclesiastes. Rejoice in your youth, right? We also say youth is wasted on the young. That a young person feels, I'm never going to be moved from this. I'm never going to be sick. I'm never going to uh, not have the world as my oyster. A rich person says, I'm never going to be poor. A person that has good looks says, my good looks will never fade. Balamot le'olam. I'm never going to be moved from this position. I'm never going to be taken off from this position. I'm in security. I'm going to stay like this forever. And we all know that human experience tells us a very different story. And David HaMelech gives expression to that over here. I said during that time of security, I'm never going to be moved. But I know, David HaMelech says, we should know. Hashem, if it was your will, you could put me at the top of the highest peaks. But I know that the second you start the panecha, the second you hide your face, your countenance from me, the second that your presence is missing from my life, the second I'm be'erev, that I'm in confusion, I'm shocked, I'm awed at my loss right now, at what I'm, I have no idea what to do. And that could happen so quickly. We could go from rags to riches and riches to rags and back and forth and it could happen in a whirlwind. To never be so certain of our place in this world, to always know that whatever blessings we've been given are blessings that have come to us and to hold on and to thank God for them and to never consider them as being for granted. To never consider our good position in this world and our blessings to be for granted. And to know that God forbid we could be moved if God were to hide his face. Um, I see we're going to run out of time. I have to tell you what the Magid, uh, the, the Magid of Mezrich, is quoted as saying on this particular line, Bahala is, I would describe it in English, Bahala is like a frenzied confusion. Bahala is like, um, you want to see what Bahala looks like? I'll show you what Bahala looks like. This is, um, this is Bahala. Um, see, I'm such a fancy person. I wrote Ed, Edward Munch. Uh, so this is Bahala. This is Bahala right over here. Bahala looks like that. If Bahala had a face, it's the scream. If Bahala had, had a face, it's, what do I do? I don't know what to do. I'm lost. I'm hidden. 
By the way, just a side point, a little art history. They say that the colors in the sky uh, when, uh, when, when this was painted was, uh, was actually because of the Krakatoa eruption, uh, which had altered the skies all the way even to Norway, uh, to Scandinavia, where it was painted. Just an interesting thing. Uh, I, I like art. Um, but back to over here. Start the panacha itim v'hal. I didn't know what to do. So listen to what the Magid says. We're not going to be able to finish this. Pirish HaMagid HaGadol. And this is brought in the Tehillim uh, Yeshua's Esa of Rav Yaakov Meir Shechter. Hastaras Panim. When we feel, and this is the way human beings characterize it, when things are good, when things are running well for me, when I have what I need, when I'm being successful, so then I'm experiencing God's countenance. That's Yisa Hashem Panav Eilecha God is turning His countenance towards us and being Mechan in us and giving us what we need. Uh, benevolence. But when that's taken away, and ordinary human beings characterize as when things are not going so well, as when our steadfast attachments and rootedness in what's going well in life is taken away. It manifests in anxiety and with the lack of ability to sit and to think straight. We're concerned, we're confused, we don't know what to do. But if a person sits and is mindful, I like translating Yishvadat as mindfulness. If I'm thinking deeply about what's occurring to me, is the fact that I lost money, or is the fact that I'm not feeling well, or is the fact that I've had some sort of a setback? And again, I don't mean to trivialize these things. Halavai that we could achieve, this is not an all or nothing proposition. Halavai, if only we could achieve some degree of the mindfulness that the Magid is describing over here. If we were able to work hard and to achieve liyashevetato, to try and settle our minds, to try and be mindful and meditate on it, and say, despite whatever is happening to me right now, I'm still going to go ahead and continue following God's path with truth and with faith. The Magid says that when we experience when we experience, but we are in a time, I would say, in, 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 a, in a thankfully smaller fashion than our ancestors and predecessors as Jews have experienced. But in this time of astaras panim, in this time of concealment, if we work hard to still function as if God was oriented towards us, to remember that God never really hid His face from us. God was never really hitting. So what that actually achieves is an arousal. It achieves some sort of connection with the divine. Something churns from the depths of our souls. Something starts to percolate to the surface. Starts to come out. Dilisani. The bucket starts to come back up. And we're able to merit an illumination, a shining of the countenance of God Almighty upon us. We're not going to have time to finish the psalm, but this is the theme of this particular psalm. Joy in the morning. That in times of darkness, in times of astaras panim, that we have work to do. The work to do is to understand that these spiritual reactions have an equal and opposite reaction. When we're lowered down, we should think already about what it means to bring something back up. When we find ourselves in the pinnacle of mountaintops and think that we'll never be moved, to understand and to already gird ourselves with understanding and mindfulness of our gifts so that if God forbid something were to change, that we would be able to orient ourselves for the way back up to 
I forgot what it's called. Um, in Greek mythology, um, when somebody descends down into the, the netherworlds, they carry with them uh, Ari, Ari, uh, Ariad. I'm gonna, we're going to search for it together, friends. And, and I know I'm over time. If anybody wants to leave, Ariadne's thread. Ari, Ariad, Ariad's, Ariad, Ariad's thread. Ah, okay. It's named for the legend of, of I don't know how to pronounce this. It's a logical thing, but that it's a, it's a thread of backtracking, something that permits backtracking, something that says that even though somebody is going to have to tell me, does anybody here know how to pronounce it? Ariadne's thread? That sounds wrong. But this is the thread, the, the, the recitation of this psalm. And what a psalm to say as we begin our day, as we begin our Pesukiah Zimra, that we take a thread and we say, no matter what depths I'm heading into, no matter how I'm spelunking spiritually during this day, to carry that thread so I could find my way back. That to find that the times that I'm lowered, that too is the salvation. And this is, to answer the question that we started out with, this is in reference both to personal salvation and to the salvation of the rebuilding and the rededication of the temple. The temple stood firm for hundreds of years, the first and the second. And there may have been a sense that this temple would never be destroyed. And we know that not only was it destroyed once, it was destroyed twice. But we have to function in this gullus, in this hastaras panim, with the recognition, understanding that we carry the thread, Psalms, Tehillim, Torah, Avodas Hashem, Tefillah, Chesed, continuing on these traditions and understanding these messages, that we follow the thread back from these things to bring us hopefully to what the Ibn Ezra told us is the recitation of this psalm at the dedication of the third temple made happen speedily in our days. I want to thank everyone for joining.